Bible reading tonight. The first one is from Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The second reading comes from Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35, and can be found on page 1058 of the Church Bibles. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, well, uh, good evening again, and um, it's great to be with you uh, tonight. You've made the right decision to, to be a church and to be able to hear uh, God's Word. Um, I've got the privilege of actually coming and, and opening up um, God's Word for us. And something I was just reminded of uh, the last couple of weeks is that whenever God's Word goes out, it never returns to Him empty. It always accomplishes the purpose um, for which it was sent. So I hope you're expectant tonight um, as we open up God's Word, and I hope you're expectant um, to see what he'll do, to see how he changes and transforms us. So I'm going to pray, and then um, we'll get into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can come and sit at your feet, so to speak, tonight. Father, we thank you that whenever your word goes out, it, it never returns to you empty, but it always accomplishes the purpose of, for which it was sent. And so, Father, as we open up your word together tonight, I pray that we would be hungry, we would be thirsty. We thank you in advance for what you will do. Point us to your Son and make us more and more like him. And I ask all this in his name. Amen. Um, many of you don't know me. Some of you do, a, a scattering. Um, but I'm a bit of a tennis fan. 
unashamedly. Um, And I can remember watching some pretty great matches in my time. Um, One of the greatest, I reckon, was the 2017 uh, Men's Australian Open final. It had two of the greatest, Rafa Nadal versus Roger Federer. And of course, I was going for the Fed. Um, How could you not? Um, I remember it vividly. Uh, It was a match that lasted apparently three hours and 38 minutes, and I felt every one. Uh, It was was a five-setter. Federer, he was surprisingly the underdog. Um, He was a little bit underdone. He was ranked about 17. Rafa was the favourite. It was intense. Uh, But I remember when Federer had a championship point. I'm on the edge of my seat. The whole crowd is silent. And then he won it. The crowd just erupted. um, And so did my living room. And my wife's just like, Chris, settle down, buddy. Just deep breaths, deep breaths. Um, And of course, being a big Federer fan, I just needed to kind of get in the action. And so where do you go? You go to social media Um, And I'm just kind of looking at social media, seeing what everyone is saying. And there was this one phrase that was sort of floating around about Federer after he won this final. And it was the, well, one anecdote, I guess you could say. And people were calling him the GOAT. I kind of had to pause and take a step back and I was thinking, what are they saying? But I figured it out. They were calling him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Some were saying the greatest tennis player of all time and others the greatest athlete of all time and I would say tick, tick, yes and yes, amen. Um, Because people, they were impressed with his skill, with his ability. See, our society today, they value this idea of greatness, of dominance, the, the, the ability to kind of control things and to have that sort of power. Our society really, really values it. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, deep down, we we all crave it to an extent. We all have this, this appetite for greatness. We want our slice out of the greatness pie, so to speak. We want some sort of acclaim, some sort of position, And it may be the the visible spotlight being at the front, but I think often, it's often the the subtle fame, the the pat on the back or the idea that we're thought of well in the eyes of others. We've, We've got this appetite for greatness, I think. And we see this actually bubbling to the surface in our passage tonight and bubbling within two key guides. James and John. These are two disciples of Jesus, the two sons of Zebedee. And these guys, they're in Jesus' inner circle. And a little bit of context with this passage, Jesus has just told his disciples that he is headed to Jerusalem, that he will die and he will rise. And so just after that, James and John, they come to Jesus with a pretty bold and audacious request. Let me read what they say. And I've actually got the Holman translation, um, just so you are aware. Apologies for that. So verse 35 says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him 
and said, teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in glory. Let me just say, there is nothing subtle about what James and John are doing here. The first thing from this passage that I want to highlight is that we see these men seeking greatness. See, they knew Jesus was going to Jerusalem. They probably had a bit of a hunch that maybe this could be the Messiah and perhaps he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. And they wanted a high standing, a high position. Let us sit at your right and at your left. How does Jesus respond? Let me read in verse 38. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? See, Jesus, he's he's not going to set up an earthly kingdom, but God's eternal one. And he would set it up by dying. And he says to them, are you able to take this cup? In the Old Testament, the cup would refer to the cup of God's wrath. And he, and he says, are you able to take that? And then he goes on and he talks about a, a special baptism. The idea of dying as a ransom, as he says in verse 45, for the sins of people. Are you able to do that, James and John? He asks these sort of rhetoric questions. What do you expect their response to be? Well, let me read. Verse 39, they say rather confidently, we are able. Pretty confident sort of guys. Mm, I don't think so. But then Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. I want to pause here for a second, and it may appear that Jesus is contradicting himself. He's just sort of said, well, you you can't, and then you can. What's going on here? Well, we know that these disciples, they couldn't die for the sins of people as a ransom. But what he's doing here is he's giving these glory-seeking disciples a reality check. He's saying, guys, you've got to know that Suffering, persecution, it's part of the package of discipleship. You're called to take up your cross and follow me. It's a different cross. It's not a cross paying for the sins of people. But following me will involve hardship. And about those positions, the one to his right and his left, he's like, guys, they've been, they've been ordained. They've been prepared. Why are you talking about that? those it's a pretty intriguing and interesting little conversation a little encounter we see with with jesus and james and john but we sort of gauge that the other 10 catch wind of it the other 10 hear about this somehow and um they're not too happy let me read in verse 41 when the other 10 disciples heard this they began to be indignant with James and John. These other 10, they're not happy, they're upset, they're annoyed, and maybe they're just annoyed because James and John are trying to cement their place up the pecking order. But I have a hunch 
I reckon they're a little bit annoyed because James and John beat them to the punch that they perhaps had similar aspirations themselves. I'm not sure, but what we see here from this passage is men seeking greatness. That's the first thing. But the second thing, what we see and what I want to point out for us is we see what Jesus does next. And what Jesus does next is he redefines true greatness. Let me read from verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. He's talking about the leaders of our world, and you can probably have some images pop up in your mind that that dominate and bully. But then he says in verse 43, but it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. See, what Jesus does here is He's redefining things. He's turning things on their head. He's saying true greatness, it's not about self-centeredness, but self-sacrifice. It's about being a servant. And then to give weight to his argument, the climax of this great passage comes in verse 45, where he actually draws their attention to him. The real great one. Let me read from verse 45. And he says this. For even the son of man. Did not come to be served. But to serve. And to give his life. As a ransom for many. See the title that Jesus gives himself in this passage is. The son of man. And that should draw our attention. That should remind us of that vision in Daniel 7. That great vision of, I guess, the end, the end times, where Daniel sees this. Daniel 7, verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is God, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Do you see what Jesus is doing here when he he claims the title, the Son of Man? He's saying that that one who has all authority, the one who is on the throne, the one, who has, the one who is magnificent, radiant, glorious, that's me. But then what does he say here in verse 45 again? For even the Son of Man, this Son of Man, great glorious Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve. See, the Bible says that All of us are in a bit of a mess. And we're in a bit of a mess because 
our sin. Our sin, which is when we ignore God, when we've turned our backs on him and we've lived our own way. Our sin has brought us in this huge mess. Our sin has held us captive. It's bound us. And because of our sin, we're actually on death row, awaiting punishment. The wages of sin is death and separation from God. And the price for our freedom wasn't small. It was a big, costly price. In 1996, Victor Lee, the son of a big businessman in Hong Kong, was kidnapped and held hostage. And the price for his release was big. It was around $197 million. That is a huge ransom. Another case in 1974 where two brothers from Argentina, Jorge and Juan Born, they were grain traders. They were also kidnapped, held hostage, and the price for their release was $293 million. These are huge ransoms, and yet they pale in comparison to the price that needed to be paid for us. Jesus knew it was a huge price. He knew that only he could pay it because he was the sinless son of God. And yet what does he do? Does he walk past us? Does he just sit back? No. Our Jesus, our king, he he steps into the mess. And he lays his life down as a ransom for many. As he died upon that cross as we celebrated on Good Friday. The innocent for the guilty. So for those who trust in him, they could be set free. They could walk free and have eternal life with God forever. Here in this passage, Jesus, he, he's redefining true greatness. And he says, look to me. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a great passage from Mark 10. But how do we respond here on a Sunday night here at Courage Hill? I want to give us two thoughts, two questions to finish up. The first is this, from this passage we see very clearly that Jesus is our ransom. So my first question for you tonight is this, have you put your trust in him? I'm not just talking about have you come to church? Have you had nice thoughts about him? No, I'm saying have you for yourself, have you put your trust in him? Because if you haven't, What he did on the cross, it doesn't count for you. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to ask tonight, have you done that? Jesus died in your place so that you could walk free. Have you trusted in him? First question. 
But secondly, from this passage, we see that Jesus is not only our ransom, he is also our example. And so my second question for you tonight is, if you have put your trust in him, I want to ask, does your life look like his? I don't know if you remember uh, going to school in preschool and you might have played a game called Follow the Leader uh, where a teacher would come and you'd have these train of kids and they'd just have to follow the leader. When they snaked around the playground, you'd just have to kind of snake around with them. Uh, When they stomped their feet, you'd kind of have to just do it because that's how the game worked. Similar to Simon says, like when Simon would say, pat your head, everyone pats their head. If Simon says, you know, rub your tummy, you do it. What Simon says, you do. And from this passage, we see that Jesus is our greater Simon, so to speak. He's our leader. He's our king. And we're called to follow him. Not that it earns us anything at all. But in light of what he has done for us, it's how we live in response to him, by his spirit's help. But I don't know about you, I I find it hard. It is hard living in the footsteps of our servant king. I read this really interesting quote that I found convicting. I don't know how you'll find it, but it was a quote by a non-Christian, Gandhi, uh, who was kind of loosely associated with Hinduism, among other things. And he said this, he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I read that and was convicted. And so let me ask you tonight, are you seeking worldly greatness or are you seeking to become more and more like your servant king? See, like James and John, do we seek to be noticed rather than promote Jesus? Do we seek applause as opposed to the praise of our king? Do we seek a good standing in our community rather than humbly serving others? Do we seek comfort over working hard for the lost? See, as I was here this morning in the morning services and as I was driving over again tonight, my prayer for myself and for you has been this has been that we wouldn't be like the sons of Zebedee in this passage. But we would be becoming more and more like the Son of Man. In our attitude, in our life. By the Spirit's help. This might look like serving in an area where no one sees except God. It might mean having that awkward conversation with a family member and actually bringing up Jesus and you know that that's just going to smear your reputation, that's just going to make things awkward, but you do it to serve them and to love them like Jesus. What might it look like for you? Because I pray that when people think of you guys here and when people think of us at Pitt Town or wherever we are, They would see less of us and more of Jesus in our words, in our lives, in in everything. 
want to leave you tonight with this famous passage from Philippians 2. Let me read it out to you. I pray that this would be us. This would be you, but this would be me. Philippians 2 verse 5. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father.